Hello and welcome to the Capital Hive podcast, where we talk all about entrepreneurship, business and experiences. Please give a warm welcome to our guest and let's just have him introduce himself. Yes, of course. So my name is Daniel Wood. I'm one of the founders of Momentum Property Education. My background is as a property investor. So today I run an investment company with our big focus on property. We also do venture capital, stocks, cryptocurrencies, but property is is our main our main focus where we buy, refurb and rent out property all over the UK. But uh, when we were starting out, we had a lot of challenges because I live in Sweden, so I'm born and raised and live in Sweden, but I invest in the United Kingdom. And when we started out, we got we actually got ripped off for about 400,000 pounds when we started out. So uh, it was a bit of a hit <laughs> to take. Uh, the good part of it, or well, the horrible part of it, but that's turned kind of good, was that we we didn't have that kind of money. You know, we were regular employees and regular jobs, so we'd raise that money from investors, friends, families, and um, you know other people we knew. And uh, when we lost that money, I had to go back to them and explain that hey, we you know we've lost your money, right? We we didn't we didn't do well. And, and it was a, it was a horrible experience. It was so stressful and, and it was really, really tough. Um, but over the years, we were actually able to turn the business around. We never went bankrupt. We've uh, been paying back and paid back all the investors. So it's been really exciting to to be on that process and actually and do that. Uh, and the good part for us was that, you know, because we had these setbacks, you know, people talk, people share their experience, and they told people about how horrible investors we were. <laughs> but then as we started paying them back, that that tune started to change. And, and people actually started reaching out to me and Gisela, who is my wife and runs the company together with me, and said, you know, can you help me? I want to get into property. Can you teach me? And, and originally we said no, but we also knew what could happen to them if they did the same thing we did. So we started helping out and it was just, it's been such an amazing journey to then set up Momentum Property Education, bring in our founder, uh, Lukas Brzezinski, who's he's a brilliant, brilliant investor. And just last year, our students bought property for over 5 million pounds and they're on track to buy over 10 million pounds of property this year. So it's been, it's been very, very exciting. So that's how you started in Momentum and that's how you got into the real estate. Um, making your portfolio but what did you do before that so before you even started investing in that scale so before that i i was in a regular corporate i was in you know multiple multiple companies mainly in the recruitment industry so i did have the the blessing to work with large corporations like ericsson and Fortum and help them with analyzing their their employer brand their recruiting strategy how to choose the right people and I also got to work a lot with startups and there I worked a lot with, you know, the CEOs and founders. So already from I started in recruitment at, at age 18. So for the next decade, I, I was learning from some, you know, entrepreneurs and business people who were showing me their their business, their plan, how they were going to grow. And I could learn this about their industry. So that was that was really exciting. Um, but what got us to switch was actually completely unrelated. It was uh, when my son was born, my oldest son, William was born. And I realized that because we were in, in Sweden, we get a lot of paternity leave. So I was off for two weeks when he was born. And 
all day we were taking walks, you know, to try to get him to fall asleep in the baby carriage. And right next to where we lived, we had this gorgeous little daycare. We would take our first walk at about 7 a.m. in the morning, and we would see kids were already there playing in the morning. And then throughout the day, we would take walks. And, and you know, when we took our walk at 6 p.m., we'd see kids were still playing there in at the daycare. And we realized that often these were the same kids who had been there at 7 a.m. who were still there at 6 p.m. You know, they'd been there for 11 hours straight. And, and that's when the realization hit me is like in one week, I'm going back to work. And, you know, once William starts in daycare, that's going to be his life. You know, he's going to be more time with his teachers than he's going to be with us, his parents. And, and that's when we decided, like, I can't be in corporate anymore. We have to do something different. So it was the idea of not being together with your family or not spending enough time with your family that got you into seeing how to get out of this nine to five hamster wheel. Exactly. Exactly. And how did that start off? I guess you didn't just go to the bank and ask for four million and said, we'll buy properties. <laughs> well, that was our first idea is like, how hard can it be? <laughs> we read the book, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and we said, wow, property, we're doing property investing. That's going to be amazing. Um, but we tried to do that here in Sweden. We tried to go to the bank. We tried to look at our accounts. And we realized that it, it's really, really hard here. And that's when we started looking at international markets. And we actually went to a seminar where this company was presenting about why you should invest in the UK. And we heard all the reasons. We got really, really excited. And, you know, we went all in. You know, we bought ourselves a mentorship. We spent, you know, 20,000 or so pounds on learning how to invest in property because we thought that if we did that, we'd get all the right connections. We would be safe. We would be secure. This was going to go really, really well. Uh, the issue we had was the company that taught us was British themselves. So uh, not that there's anything wrong with British people, uh, <laughs> but the issue <laughs> was that everyone in that company was investing in their hometown. So yeah. they'd only experienced investing in their backyard or a drive away. So they, they were always there. So when they, they were great at teaching us, like how does property work, the ins and outs, the calculations, all these things. But when it came to project managing and being a thousand miles away, they had no idea how to do that. And that's where we then saw over the next couple of years, how supposed partners were ripping us off, builders were ripping us off, you know, we're getting fake build reports. And the problem is this can be really, really hard to spot if someone really does it properly. You know, if they're faking invoices, faking build reports, it's very hard to spot when you're not there seeing the actual build. And that's where we had to learn to create a system for how do you make sure that the builds are actually going according to plan? How do you know what a building is supposed to cost to refurb and all these things so that the projects go according to, to the plan you set? Okay, now quickly, you just mentioned that you got a few reasons why to invest, invest in the UK. And as I heard, you still do. What are some of those reasons? Well, so the first and the, the easiest is to you know, Sweden is a very heavily regulated country, as is many countries in Europe. And France is the same way, Germany and, and a, to a certain degree. They're all, if you look at it, the laws and regulations are always tilted either towards the landlord or towards the tenant. And in uh, a lot of European countries like Sweden, it is very tilted towards the tenant. In, in some cases, actually an even better example though is in France, 
my mom worked in France for, for a couple of years. And when she did, the apartment she lived in, the person who'd lived in that apartment before her hadn't paid rent for three years. And it wasn't legal in France to evict a tenant even if they didn't pay. And so as an investor, that makes you a little worried. If I buy a property and someone decides just to live there and not pay, there's nothing I can do legally. In the UK, the laws and regulations are tilted towards the landlord. If someone doesn't pay, it takes about a month or two to kick them out because you're supposed to pay your invoices, right? Yeah. <laughs> if, yeah. uh, if someone is a problem, that is on your side. And what's happened is the, the government is very, very pro small business in the investor space. And when regulatory pressures come in that show that it that they want to get more companies involved, that tends to trickle down to the finance sector. So as an investor in the UK, financing is, is I, I don't want to say very easy, but compared to what I, where I'm in in Sweden, it's very, very easy. You can, even as an international investor, once you set up a UK limited company, you can get from 65, even up to 80% loan to value on property at very good, reasonable interest rates, which means that all we got to do is cover that last 25%, which is a lot better than in Sweden, where you're happy if you get a 50% loan to value. Okay. So it's mostly that the laws are in favor of the landlord and not the tenant and the, the finance sector and all these other things follow with it. Yeah, so that then that has a huge cascade effect, right? Because because of that, the returns are much, much higher. And now when you have a, a market where anyone can get into the market, where the returns are good and healthy, well, what happens is a lot of people get into the market, right? Yeah. And a lot of small investors or international investors, we can't manage our own properties. But in Sweden, it's the same thing. But because there are so few players, there isn't really an infrastructure to help investors take care of their portfolio. You have to hire an employee to do it, which can be really expensive. In the UK, you have your mortgage brokers who will negotiate with you in the banks. You have your sourcing agents that will find you the deals. And you have your management agents or letting agents, as they call it in the UK, that will actually take the property. They will find you tenants and they get paid a percentage of the rent meaning their, their interest is aligned with yours because they just want to find a good tenant that pays as much rent as possible and then makes no fuss because then it's essentially a passive income for them as well. And that's what's so great about the UK is because of the laws and regulations, the financing is there and then the infrastructure to help even small investors is there. So it's really just that the UK really wants people to invest in its properties and everything follows with that is what's really pushing the UK at the top of potential here. Exactly. And I mean, they have a, a lack of homes of about 2.4 million homes in the UK, Yeah, which is why they've done the, made that decision. Now, I should say countries like Sweden also have a huge lack of homes, but it's, it's the difference in, in kind of the mindset from the governments. In Sweden, what they've said is this is a huge problem. So the only ones who can fix it are huge companies. So they create all these benefits to companies that can build 100 plus properties at a time. You know, yeah. if you're going to build an apartment building with 100 properties, you're fine. You're going to get you're going to get great returns in Sweden. But if you're just building one or two, the government doesn't see that as it's not going to have an impact. 
While in the UK, they said, well, what if we have 100,000 people building two properties a year? That makes a dent on our issue. Let's do that. And so it's two ways of saying, look, it either needs all hands on deck to solve it or huge companies. And because I'm not building, you know, 100, 200 or 1,000 properties at a time, then Sweden doesn't fit me as a market. What might happen is as we continue to grow in the UK, we might diversify into Sweden and do some large scale developments in the future, because at that point, that's when the government will will want to work with us and support us. Hmm, that's just the next point I wanted to get into. Now you said you invest in England or in the United Kingdom, but isn't that a bit all eggs in one basket? What if the UK housing market crashes? Wouldn't you want something outside maybe the States? another country that's beneficial to the tenant in Europe. I'm not sure which those are, Switzerland, maybe. Absolutely. I mean, what you want to do, in my opinion now, this is definitely not financial advice, this is mm. my opinion, <laughs> is I start with one country and I learn that country really well. Is right now we're actually buying a portfolio of 11 flats. We're buying two other properties at the same time. And I spend about two, three hours a month on my property company. So we've gotten to that point where it's now running itself. When you get to that point, that's where I think it's time to diversify. So we have done deals in Spain. We got the US on, on the horizon, but we're also, we're also diversifying into completely different industries. Like we've done venture capital. We invest in stocks, we're investing in cryptocurrencies. So we're adding a lot more layers and we do, we, we run companies like Momentum. So we're creating all these diversified income streams that creates us a safety. But what we tell our students to do is get into, get to a point where you know the UK, you have your team that kind of runs itself and then you choose the next market. And I would definitely look at, again, now I'm just saying what I'm looking at, but that's Spain, that's the US. And then we're looking at, uh, we're, we're considering either South America or different Asian countries. You know, we've looked at India and, and uh, other countries in, in Asia, but uh, that will be phase three, so to speak. Phase two is Spain and the US. So now you've got this home base called Indian investment for you. England then a bit more risky or just different is gonna be Spain, US. Are they more risky? Well, they're very different. So in Spain, Spain is obviously a completely different type of financial market than the UK. The UK is, it, to put it simply, it's very old money. You know, it's a very stable, strong economy. Even with, you know, Brexit, the economy itself hasn't really been affected that much. Obviously, we've had COVID at the same time, so it's been all these things going on. But the economy is in a very strong position, even with everything that has happened. Spain is a lot more volatile market, but what we tend to do in Spain is we do um, tourism letting. So we rent out on short-term lets. We do have a lot of people from the Nordics. We have a lot of people in the UK who travel to Spain on vacation. So that is a great market to use. Obviously, it's a little tough right now with travel restrictions, but we see how that's going to grow going forward. Uh, the US, again, completely different market. Essentially, I mean, the US is 52, you know, it's it's 50 states. And those 50 states are essentially 50 different countries. Yeah. So if you, it's like saying, you know, when I say I'm going to invest in the US, that's like saying I'm investing in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't really mean too much. 
I'm just heading quickly back to Spain. So is that yeah, something sure. in the like Airbnb or is that something like renting out to someone that then rents it out? Or what is no, the... I would, we do it directly or we bring in a management agent who does that on our behalf. So they'll charge between 10 and 20% of the rents that they achieve goes to them. We keep the rest and they use all kinds of platforms. They use Airbnb, booking.com, home away, and, and a lot of smaller sites as well that uh, together all goes into one booking system that then books up in all of these. So if someone books this week on Airbnb, directly it shows up as as fully booked that week on on booking.com okay so it's an accumulation of different sites that work together there basically put it everywhere where someone could book a a holiday and and try to get on that list so that you you fill up as much as possible okay and now let's get back to the u.s so you said the 50 states are practically like 50 countries because the laws are so different which of these 50 countries are you uh, aiming to go into? Well, right now we're still in due diligence mode, so we haven't gone into it yet. So I don't definitely don't want to give any any direct advice, but there's so many different strategies and that's what makes it exciting. So a lot of investors invest in places like in, in like Northern California around San Francisco. Um, the benefit of a place like that is you have, or historically, have had really nice capital appreciation. House prices go through the roof, but the rents are comparatively low to the values. So your cash flow is very, very low, sometimes even negative. So you're buying for that future capital appreciation. So that's a market that, you know, for that type of investment works great. I like to have cash flow. So I look at more other markets. I have a lot of friends who invest in Texas and I've had a lot of success there. I have other friends who invest in Cleveland with good success. Uh, Florida is also an exciting market because you can invest just for the rents and, and income in Florida, or you could go and kind of aim to places like Miami Beach, Orlando, and places like that where you can get that same holiday let upside. So there, there are so many strategies to look at, and we're still exploring where we believe the best opportunity for us is. Okay, so you so you have not quite dialed in, but you already know the market quite well, as I hear. Yeah, I mean, we do have a lot of contacts that invest there. I have a lot of friends who've been trying to get me to invest there for the past few years. But uh, right now, we're making sure we have all our ducks in a row. We have everything lined up. You know, when we started out in the UK, you know, we were so stressed. We were jumping into that market and we got burned really bad. So now we've learned to take it a little more easy, <laughs> do it one step at a time. We've, uh, you know, we got our teams, our different departments who run our, you know, our different portfolios and in all these different asset categories. And now we're just looking at adding this to the mix. So we're, we're making sure we got the right team in place. We've got the right due diligence in place that so we got the systems and that's what we're going to go with. All right. So now we've talked about these more stable countries. If you look at a bit more international, every developed country, Spain, England, United States, but you talked about India, very known developed uh, developing country a fast developing country that's a very different market to go into how are you going to approach that yes yeah, so that's a really interesting question and that's our phase three so that's that's a way out ways out but luckily i do have contacts in that part of the world that have successfully invested in property so uh, that we we aren't close enough to really set our strategy there because there are, you know you have kind of three main strategies you can go down 
Um, you can either go tourism. Obviously, there is a big tourism market. You can go for lower income housing, or you can go for super high net worth, like luxury housing. Because in countries like India, you have the super, super wealthy, and then you kind of have the rest of the population. And uh, what we what we've seen is obviously low income housing in India is really low income housing. I mean, we're talking really, really crappy living. So we would never want to build property like that. We would never want to be that type of a landlord. But I'd love to build quality homes and provide it to that type of people who really, really is in need of it. And, you know, currently might be living in in just a metal shack in that in that scalding heat heat. The question is, it, will the numbers you know, back it up? Can we build that and actually make it profitable? And so that, that's where we would still have a lot of work to do to see how do we find a model where we can help people who, who really need homes. Because I, I'm not really, for me, the, the ultra luxury market has never appealed to me. I, I'm, I more love the, the feeling of helping someone who needs a home to get a home. So lower income housing is something I, I, I am more attracted to, but I want to make sure that we're providing quality living somewhere where I would like to live myself, right? It's got to be at a level where I could come and stay there and, and feel that, that it's fine. But it's getting that model to work where how do you provide a quality living and still keep the rents low enough that the people we want to help can afford it? And, and I think that's where it would take a while to get into India. We would probably have to look at maybe having, you know, they're in China, they're doing a lot of 3D printed houses. So we'd have to go and do the, the kind of the state of the art technology to be able to get the prices down low enough. The good news in, in a place like India is that they, they aren't as tough on the rules and regulations when it comes to the building regulations in the UK if you want to, i'm not saying that a 3d printed house is worth worse generally it's a lot higher quality and it's a lot lot safer to live in and be in but it's called they, they see it in the uk it's called non-standard construction so mm -hmm. anything that's not bricks and mortar is non-standard construction in sweden we have much better building quality than the uk i mean that it is completely different world but we do a lot of wood housing so the houses that are so much higher quality in Sweden, if you just transport and move them over to the UK, those property could, could actually be tough to get lending on because they're non-standard construction. So even mm -hmm. though they're higher quality, it could be a challenge. So a place like India where they don't have the same building regulations, I'm not saying that in a sense of like we could cut corners, I'm saying it in the exact opposite. It allows us to use the state-of-the-art technology to build a better home and still be able to finance it because they don't care in the same way about non-standard construction. But like I said, we have a lot of research and due diligence to do to find out is there still a lot of regulation. I'm not saying it's an unregulated market. So there's a different regulation that we'd still have to follow and make sure we're compliant with. So now we've been talking about how you invest in portfolio, in, in, in real estate, I mean, with your portfolio. Um, but now you also have momentum where you teach people how to do this properly. Go us through how you actually teach people, because I'm guessing it's not just like YouTube where you Google it, mm, let me go out and spend a bit of money and see how it works. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's been such a, such an exciting journey with uh, with momentum. Is it okay if I tell a, sh a short story from one of our first sure. students? Yeah. Um, is what happened was when we started momentum, it was people started reaching out and really just saying, Hey, look, I've heard you've done property in the UK. I would love to do it. Can you please help me? And, and we started helping people out kind of semi semi formally. And then finally we decided we'll, we'll create momentum property education. We'll do this properly. And what happened when with some of our first students, they, they had such success. It was so exciting to see uh, a few years ago, I got this phone call from one of our students uh, who said, Daniel, you, you, the family, you guys, you've got to come over to dinner next Friday. And we already had plans. So I said, well, why, why next Friday? Can, can we do it on the Saturday? Is that okay? He said, no, it's got to be on the Friday. It has to be Friday next week. I said, well, can we do it some other time? We got plans. He said, no, we have to do it then. I said, all right, I'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll be there. And so we come to their home. And, you know, they let us in, we sit down for dinner. And, and so I asked them, well, why was it so important that we were here today? You know, well, what's, what's the deal here? And he said, well, this was actually our last day at work. Tomorrow we're celebrating with our family, but we wanted to celebrate with you guys first because it's because of you that we don't need to have a job anymore. Our portfolio covers our, our monthly expenses. And it was just such a wow. I mean, since then they've moved to Spain and they're just, they're living their, their dream life. And that's when it really hit us. It's like, wow, this is the impact on one family. This is the impact what we do has. And so what we did was we went down, we spoke to over a hundred investors, international investors, you'd all invested in the UK and asked them, you know, what was challenging about your journey? What was good about your journey? What went well? What went poorly? And what would be the perfect support you could get to have succeeded? And we got all these feedback from all these different people. And we took that and we sat down and said, all right, so how do we build something that, that you know, can, can do this for a large amount of people? And so what we do is we have a free introduction video that's it's about an hour and a half and it teaches the basics of property investing, how to calculate deals, how to find deals, the, the mistakes I made to lose, you know, 400,000 pounds, how to avoid them and, and, you know, our three steps to succeeding in property. So it gives that base. Now, I would not suggest anyone to go from that free course and start investing, but it does give you a good point of reference and it, and it does give you a base. From there, we actually give free access to one of our courses. And one of the things that's included in Freedom Property Intensive is um, we give access to the first module, which includes the Getting Started Checklist. And the Getting Started Checklist will literally show every single step you need to take from wherever you are now to buying that first property. So from there, once you have that, yes, technically you could actually go and watch YouTube. You could say, okay, so my next step is I need to open a company. YouTube, how do I open a company? Or Google, how do I open a company in the UK? And then you do that. Your next step is, all right, I need an accountant. All right, accountant UK, I'll just Google one. Now, you might not get the same quality, <laughs> but you could go through the steps. It would take a lot of time and a lot of work, but we have students that just take the getting started checklist, do it and go off and buy property and have actually had success. But for those who really wanna work with us, we have online courses, but then we have our mentorship. And what we do is then we take you by the hand, we make sure you go through every step of the getting started checklist. 
And the same people that I call when I'm looking for a deal, I work with, I mentioned that in passing before sourcing agents, sourcing agents are people that specialize in finding deals and have a local team of builders and letting agents who can run the property for you. And so the same sourcing agents that I call, because there's a huge difference in quality between mm -hmm. sourcing agent and sourcing agent, the people I call, I introduce you to. So they are now your sourcing agents. So you get the same deals that I do, the same quality of service that I do, the same help that I do. And, uh, and that's because you're a part of the Momentum community, right? Because if they don't give you the same service they give me, they are no longer introduced to our community. So the fact that we are over 400 investors means everyone is getting that level of support. And, and that makes it a lot easier. That allows our students to avoid the mistakes we did. And they can focus more on how to raise capital to do more deals. <laughs> And we, we teach them 25 different sources. So a lot of our students don't have money today. They might have enough for the mentorship. They might have enough for their first deal. They might have a lot of money or they might not. But we have found 25 different ways our students can fund their property deals. Only one of them is their own capital. So we show them that. We create that strategy. We create that business plan together. And then they go out and do it. And like I said, last year they bought two, five million pounds worth of property, which was really, really cool. In the middle of all the craziness going on in the world, they they did great. So you've achieved this goal of your own getting out of this hamster wheel. But how much do you actually work now? Because many entrepreneurs I've talked to in this podcast, they say, I, I want to stop working nine to five. I don't, I don't have enough freedom. But in the end, they work 12 or 16 hours a day because they're working on their own business. Are you actually working less now or are you working more than before? Well, I think it was the shark, Lori Jenner, who said, entrepreneurs are the only people in the world who work 80 hours a week to get out of working 40. So <laughs> I know what you mean. Um, it depends on what you consider work, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people, you know, we have our smartphone, right? And people have, you know, whatever the new version of uh, Farmville is now, right? That's what that's what people spend a lot of time on. What I do as my hobby is literally, I love reading, uh, reading about stocks or reading about cryptocurrencies or reading about different investments. To me, that's fun. So if you count that as work, then yes, I do do a lot of work. But if we look at it like my property portfolio, which funds our lifestyle, takes a couple hours a month. Momentum, we're scaling up the team. So I'm, I'm working a lot more on the recruitment side than I am in the business. But if you add it all together and you add the time I, I have my fun and doing due diligence, I'm sure I'm working 80 to 100 hours a week. Um, but it's by choice. It's, it's something I enjoy and it's something I love to do. I remember reading a story I don't know which, I don't remember which book it was. It was probably Jack Canfield or Bob Proctor or someone like that who wrote in their book. It was a story about a gentleman who he'd, there was a journalist who came to him and said, wow, why? why? Yeah, he was an, an entrepreneur, a business owner. And, and they, he showed him around his business and he said, well, why, why do you work so hard? And, you know, how much time do you, you know, how do you answer the question that many say you're a workaholic? And he said, well, Honestly, I, I, I don't think I've worked a day in my life. And the, the journalist says, what are you talking about? You just showed me everything. You're here with me. You're obviously working. He said, well, my company builds planes. And when I was a kid, I would play with toy airplanes. When I went to college, I would build model airplanes. 
when I then graduated and I started my business, I get to play and build planes. All I've done my whole life is I'm playing with planes. The, all that's changed is the size of the plane. So I don't think I've worked a day in my life. I've done what I love to do. And that's how I kind of see being an entrepreneur. If you're doing what you love to do, you're, you're not really working. Obviously there are parts of it, like doing the bookkeeping that I don't really enjoy as much. <laughs> Uh, luckily we have people that do most of that work, but I still got to get involved. I got to go through everything and I got to go through those reports. So there are parts that aren't always, you know, that aren't the high points of my week, but most of what I do is stuff I really, really enjoy. Like being here with you. <laughs> Thank you. But now you've talked about all of these successes some of your students have had, but the world is all, is not only the rosy. Have you, do you have some not failures, but maybe some setbacks that have taught you a lot and you maybe have implemented in the Momentum teachings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've had a lot. Like I said, we lost 400,000 pounds when we started out. So I could spend the next hour telling you those stories. Um, but what I'm, what I'm very happy about, what we're very blessed is none of that has happened to our students. We've had a few students where, you know, build quotes have gone up a little bit, but we always make sure they have a margin of error of 10% in case something happens to a build because things do happen. And not once has the, has the project gone outside of the, you know, buffer margin guidelines we've given them. So, so far our students have done really, really well. Um, but a part of that, I'll, I'll tell you a kind of a funny story we had. This was our it was our first deal we actually accepted it then took a few months to, to complete so we actually bought other properties first but it was the first deal we ever ever accepted and it was to buy three blocks up in blackpool north of uh, manchester and so each block we it was a basically a terraced house but that were remaking into a block of flats so there were three, three, and five, well, three, three, and four flats to be built in these. So a total of 10. But uh, halfway through the project, the building that was supposed to be four, I got a phone call from our partner, our local partner there, who said, Daniel, I got amazing news. The architect has done such a great job that we've actually got a fifth flat into this property. Mm -hmm. And, you know, me being new and gullible and thinking this guy knew what he was talking about. I'm like, oh, that's amazing news. That's great. What does that do for our numbers? He's like, oh, it's all good. It's all great. And sorry, I got to go. And a couple years later, literally, we'd kick this guy off of the project. And, uh, you know, we'd taken over the portfolio ourselves and we had to turn this whole around because there were so many mistakes happening. And one of the mistakes was when we went back and looked was how this fifth flat was created the architect what they had done was so it was three floors so mm -hmm. you had the top floor flats and you had the bottom floor what the, the mistake the, the architect has done was he hadn't realized that putting the the front door and the stairs up to the next level flat he hadn't realized that it was a bad idea to have that go through the living room of the bottom floor flat. <laughs> so all of a sudden when they were getting to it, they're like, uh-oh, we can't put this here. And two of the rooms had ended up on the wrong side of you know, the entry hall. And so then they call that a new flat. 
And so there was just so many mistakes like that. So what we learned <laughs> was we have to we we have to own the project a lot more. We have to be involved, and we always need to be a part of the architectural drawings. Because obviously, if we'd seen that, we would have realized it right away. And for some reason, our partner, well, they were just not good at what they did. This was the this was too big a project for them. They had missed that completely. And by the time the builders had started the work, that's when they realized it, and they had to come up with that fixed solution. And that's when they gave us the good news. So, so that's a, that's an example of how property can go poorly. <laughs> so, what we what we get out of this is always check your work, and even if it's not actually your work, but it's something you're affected by, check it yourself. Well, it's one of my mentors. He always says, "Inspect what you expect." So, you know, you got to delegate, you got to be able to empower other people, but you got to have a system for inspecting it. What we do now is we obviously we bring in partners. We have the sourcing agent who comes in and brings in deals, but we don't just put everything on them. We'll bring in an external project manager who looks over looks over the shoulder of the builder. The sourcing agent will also look over the shoulder of the builder because they're interested in the project going well. And then we always involve the lettings agent because the lettings agent is the one who will get this property in the end, right? So after it's been refurbed, after everything is done, it lands in their, in, in their you know, hands. So if it's a shoddy refurb job, it's gonna be harder for them to rent out, more things are gonna break down, and it's gonna be a lot more work for them. So they want the refurb to go well. So we make sure they come by and inspect the property maybe once a month during the refurb because we know they're gonna tell us the truth as well as the external project manager, the sourcing agent, and the builder. So we have all these people keeping an eye on each other to make sure the deal goes according to plan. And, and that way, our odds of success are so much higher than when you just put it on one person's shoulders and let them run it. And if they turn out to be a, a bad character, that can really, really punish you in the end. So like securing yourself from multiple with multiple people. It's making sure, I mean, it's the same thing what large corporations do in finance, right? They don't just give the keys to the kingdom to someone in the finance department and say, hey, you you handle all the payments, you handle all the bookkeeping, you do everything. I remember I was listening to the biography about Warren Buffett and uh, called Snowball. And I don't remember how this person was related to him but I think it was his, one of his friends in college's father was, had built the business and then turned that business over to, to this bookkeeper. And the bookkeeper was in charge of paying the bills and then documenting and doing the bookkeeping, which meant that he decided to use this power to pay himself all the bills and then could cover it up by doing the bookkeeping. It's the same principle. You have one person paying the bills, you have another person doing the bookkeeping, meaning looking them over the shoulder, and then you have a third person that makes sure that report is correct, and then you have yourself and an external accountant that double check the double checkers work. Now all of a sudden five people are running your your finance, which means if someone is trying to embezzle money, they got to pull the wool over off of four other people, which makes it that much harder. I think with that lesson we'll move into the six standard questions to round off this podcast all right um yeah so what's your 
best investment and we do not mean like a financial investment like what you do but more like a book a trip or anything that you have learned something from or a marriage oh, wow. ring that... getting together with a family oh that is that is uh, that is a really really good question i was loaded up with a financial investment there um, <laughs> but but that is so much for me i mean obviously you know my family is what started it all i've done my entire business journey together with gisella and uh, you know we started it because of the kids so all that has been a learning experience but if we take like a single event that we did i think it was the first time i went to unleash the power within by tony robbins i did it just as we were right there where we're on the edge are we going to go bankrupt or not that's when i went to see to see tony and it was such a game-changing experience because that it was then and there that i said all right look we're not going bankrupt we're going to figure this out i have no idea how but we're going to figure this out and that started the turnaround of our business and actually i speak through success resources i speak on behalf of tony robbins today so that was really a monumental moment in in my life so unleash the power within with tony robbins and then we'll already move into what you regret investing in so again really not a financial thing here but more like an expensive car as soon as you got that first rent check or something like that honestly i've always been pretty um fiscal what we we did do i, I think we've always been pretty fiscally responsible so i think really for us our our worst investment is the investment we made where we didn't actually do our due diligence because essentially those three blocks of flats that we bought that that is your expensive car that didn't go anywhere right we spent so much money on those properties i think we we lost about 120,000 pounds on that deal so uh, that that was probably the roughest we've done and it just comes down to doing your due diligence doing your homework getting the right team in place all right i think i think that's what we've learned a lot from this podcast is to do your work properly even if you have someone else doing it for you check it out yeah so to your favorite quote one of my favorites in the podcast Right. So I was playing with two. I got one from Warren Buffett and one from Brian Tracy. So I'm going to, I did land on the one from Brian Tracy as I think that is my favorite. And it is, there are no unreasonable goals, only unreasonable deadlines. Essentially it, it comes to the same thing. Tony Robbins says the same. Most people greatly overestimate what they can do in a, in a year, but they greatly underestimate what they can do in a decade or decades. So sometimes you'll set that exciting goal for yourself, you'll aim for the stars, and then you fall short. But really, and what I've, what I've come to believe is that you didn't actually fall short, you just haven't given yourself enough time yet. You're gonna make it. You just gotta have a little more persistence, give it a little more time. I mean, there are books and books and books written about this principle, and Three Feet from Gold, from uh, Think and Grow Rich, and, and stuff like that, all talk about. Sometimes it takes longer than you're going to expect, but if you push through that little extra, you are unstoppable. I think that's a very good lesson to take from this. Um, this is a very funny one. We have heard a lot of funny stories. What's the weirdest way you've made money before? <laughs> well, actually, it's probably something we're doing right now 
uh, we're, we're doing a really cool project where we're actually getting paid to give away another company's money. Okay. So that is the funny, that's the, that's the most exciting project where we've worked on because it, it's, it's not big money at a time. We're giving away 250 euros at a time, but we're actually getting paid to do it, which has been really, really fun. Can we get a bit more context into what this is? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, it's a project we're working on now. So I didn't want to come in and pitch it, mm -hmm. but it is the weirdest way I've made money. Essentially what we've done is we've, we, we worked with, well, we were working with an investment company, one of these high risk, high reward investment companies, where if we could deposit a minimum $300 in investment and get about 156% net return per year, which is obviously pretty good, but again, it comes with high risk. And what they do is they give out a commission if you refer people. But I don't want to put my brand on something that comes with high risk, even if the reward is high, because even if you tell people, hey, there's high risk, if it does fall apart, they come back and say, why, why did you recommend me this? This was this was horrible. So we then because of what we do, another company reached out to us and what they do is they mystery shop. They test different online brokerage platforms like trading platforms. And what they would do is, uh, you know, if you wanted to do it, they'd say, yes, here is 250 euros, deposit it into the broker platform, trade for a month, and then you take the money out. And so if you've made any profit or you made loss, you take that money out. And then what we do is we say, all right, yes, now you should have about $300, which happened to be this high risk, high reward minimum investment, right? Mm -hmm. So then you can put that money in there. And essentially, you've been able to do that high risk, high reward investment for free. You don't have any of your own money in, meaning you got the entire upside and you got none of the downside. And what's great is I can actually give you up to 10 of these brokers, meaning I can actually give you up to $3,000. Now, all the brokers aren't good. All of them don't pay out. Usually it's about eight out of 10. So say you get about, say, say you just get $2,000. Well, you got $2,000 then into this high risk, high reward investment. Worst case, you walk away with zero losses. Best case, you're making 156% on a $2,000 investment. And we've been able to do that. You can share it with your friends and actually you get a commission as well. So it's the, the upside is amazing. We've done this with 200 people already. We have up to 10,000 people we can give this to. And it's just been an amazing, amazing ride. So it's been really, really fun. That sounds like a great way to do this. It's makes a lot of money. It's smart and it's weird in some way. It is a little off. It's a little off. And, uh, and the good thing is no one's taking any risk. That's our whole thing is if I'm recommending an investment, it's got to be as low risk as possible. And we were able to take away that risk now and say, hey, no risk at all. So if you should give one piece of advice to um, a person of my age or maybe a bit older or younger, what would that be in like one or two small sentences? Well, so we we actually in Momentum, we work off of a formula. We call it our success formula. It's called KAP or CAP. And really that that summarizes it all. So the K stands for knowledge. So if you're going to do anything, whether it's be an entrepreneur, invest in property, stocks, cryptocurrency, whatever you want to invest into, Make sure you get the right knowledge first. Spend the time that takes. You know, watch YouTube videos, listen to podcasts like this, follow the people that know what they're doing. 
and then you want to go all the way and kind of invest in a mentor but make sure you don't do my mistake and invest in a mentor who's doing something completely different than yourself even if it happens to be in the same space try to find someone that's been on been where you are and it has gone to where you want to go and that has had setbacks on the way if they hit those three points so for example say you wanted to get into well let's just say property if you're going to invest in your own city don't come to me because I've never done that. I've never invested in my own city. Mm -hmm. So then you find someone who's investing in your own city who might be born and raised there and has made that journey and who started from a similar financial starting point that you were in. That's your perfect mentor. So that would be step one, get the knowledge. The section, the second part is action, which is kind of a reminder to not just get stuck in the analysis, you know, analysis paralysis space and overdo it start getting the knowledge then putting it into play and then get the right people that's the p the right people around you to make sure that you know you have for example in us in property we get the right all the deals come through external contacts and also all the funding comes from external contacts our job is to put those two together and take our cut of the deal and it works the same way and similar ways in business right you'll have your team to make sure you deliver the product in-house and you'll have external partnerships and clients externally. When you put that together, that's when you, that's when you win. So if you, if you're going to succeed, just go KAP and you'll smash it. If you have the persistence to go long enough. So KAP only works if you actually go for the long run. It doesn't work if you want to do it in a month. No, well, I don't think anything succeeds in a month. You could be really lucky and pick the right cryptocurrency right before it takes <laughs> off. But if you're playing on that, you could also just go to Vegas and put everything on black and you got a 50-50 chance or, well, 49% chance to win. Mm -hmm. All right. And now to round it off, what's your number one bucket list goal right now? And that can be in any form of life. Well, I think it's so hard to choose one, isn't it? But uh, if I'm going to say the most, the most fun one, the one that kind of gets me the most exciting is that one day I, I love baseball. All right. Just as a preface, I love baseball and I want to one day own a share of my favorite baseball team. So uh, the San Francisco Giants, they have 33 owners. So I would like to add myself to those ranks and take a, take a part of that company. That would be that would be a dream come true. I think that's a really nice way to round off this podcast. Any final words you want to get out there? Well, I'd love to thank everyone for for listening. I, I hope I get a chance to connect with you guys again. And, and Jens, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was an honor to be here. Hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next Saturday. See you then.